Hi, I'm Natasha Wall and you're listening to the Film Ireland podcast. We were lucky enough to speak to Dr. Nyasa Hardiman about her new film, Sea Fever. Sea Fever is about a crew of a West Ireland trawler marooned at sea who struggle for their lives against a growing parasite in their water supply. On the surface, this is a thrilling monster movie, but it has science and humanity at its core. Yasa Hardiman, it's uh, my great pleasure to be able to speak to you on the Film Ireland podcast. You are on the brink of imminent release of your debut feature, Sea Fever, after some amazing success with television directing. Um, and a BAFTA. How many BAFTAs do you have? I got a BAFTA for uh, for Happy Valley. Happy Valley. I have, I saw, I was lucky enough to get a ticket for this for a Dublin International Film Festival and I have, I have so many questions, so hopefully we'll get through them all. But I just want to start with, I suppose, what your intentions were with this film, because I think you have really interesting intentions. And one thing that I took away from your Q&A afterwards was the quote from uh, Zosia Zizek. Zaks. Zaks. And she said, the ship of humanity, we all we need all hands on deck to write the ship of humanity. And you said this film is about all uh, the ship of humanity needs all hands on deck. So can you tell us a bit about that? First of all, it's a pleasure to be here. So the film, essentially, the film is, a, is um, what I was trying to do with the film is to hit that sweet spot between the, the pure language of cinema, which is the language of metaphor, the language of anal- analogy. It sort of lives in that Brechtian space where mm. you make something that feels like a dream, but like a dream, it has proper depth and resonance and meaning in the real world. So that's that was the intention behind the film is to hit that sweet spot between something that is imagistic, but also has a political resonance. Yeah. And I think it's like I think it's so great that you had your cast was quite diverse. It was quite intersectional. You had uh, people of colour and you had uh, a woman uh, in the lead. Um, And it was just it was just a great cast. Um, yeah, the, well, there there are two sides to that, really. The first part is um, because it's set on a boat and I'm really nerdy, so I did a whole load of research. Cool. Uh, and um, there were a couple of things that uh, that I learned in, ter- in terms of intersectionality about the boats, about the trawlers off the West Coast, mm. off the West Coast of Europe, actually, not even just off the West Coast of Ireland. The first was that they are, it wasn't something that I imposed on that story. It is something that emerged naturally out of the research is, those crews are really, really diverse. Uh, they are transnational by their nature. Uh, that is partly because the work has become increasingly hard over the last 50 years mm. through overfishing and through globalisation. Uh, those small boats of seven or nine people which are owned by family really struggle on the edge of, of an economic precipice. And the people who um, work on those boats tend to be people who are struggling on the economic precipice. So you, you get a lot of people who are migrants. Sure. You get a lot of people who have escaped from war zones. Uh, you get a lot of people who are very skilled and very able, but who are struggling to to find their way uh, into their place in, in a new society. So that was that was a very natural kind of outcrop of the research was, mm. God, these, these boats are really transnational and that's a very natural thing. The other thing that was so interesting about the research was um, the first person that I reached out to was uh, the skipper of a boat uh, that fishes out of Russaville called Cleana Keneally. Uh, and she was brilliant and really helpful. And she read the script for me and, and um, you know, helped me to make it really authentic, going, this is what we do and this is how we do it. And these are the moments that are the most critical and this is where the most injuries happen. And all of those kinds of details that I wanted to be absolutely right. Yeah. Um, and she introduced to me to her husband. 
uh, and I forget his name now, but but uh, he's Icelandic. And she's a kind sort of Rukhish from, from Rossville. And I went, well, it's really unusual you have an Icelandic husband. And they both kind of looked at me going, no. <laughs> and of course, then she was telling me, you know, uh, they they logged their departure point on GPS with the Coast Guard, right? So they're supposed to say, we're leaving Rossville. We're going up to, I don't know, Reykjavik. And then we're going up to, I don't know, somewhere else, Oslo. And then we're going to come back down. But she said, actually... Because everybody knows each other. What they do is they say, we're leaving O'Brien's and then we're heading up to Olaf's, which is the pub they all go to in wherever it is, you know, Reykjavik. And then we'll be up in Bjorn's, which is the pub they all go to. So they all know each other and they're all connected to each other and they all share a history and they all share stories and they all marry each other. And there's something really lovely about that for me. Uh and I hope for, for the people who are watching the film, because we live in a world which is increasingly kind of nationalistic and increasingly mm. obsessed with borders and identity and nationalism. And to meet a community of people who are so fluid and who are so open to anybody who can contribute and anybody who has the skill set that they need. And they create these transnational families where it doesn't matter how you wear your gonads or how much melanin you have in your skin. If you're good at your job, you're in. And there was something really gorgeous about that that I wanted to reflect truthfully in the story. Yeah, and I absolutely love that. And I think it's so needed in today's uh, in today's climate where we are thinking so heavily about borders. Uh, I suppose this film, like it's like I've read a couple of reviews and articles, especially from Toronto and stuff like that, and they're talking about this as a big monster movie. And I feel like it it has like it is a monster movie. It's a very cool monster movie. It, it reminded me of Alien, but at sea. <laughs> um, um, but it has a very distinct moral compass, and I think that's something that was picked up a lot too. Like this is that. Um, but it's wrapped up in a monster film. So where did, I'm just wondering where that came into it. Like, why not just make uh, a story about a bunch of people at sea? Why bring the monster into it? I just would love to, I'd love to know more about that. It's a really interesting question. I'm going to answer it in two ways. So if if I forget in the middle, you have to tell me that I've forgotten. (laughs) So the first thing is, you're absolutely right. There There are two ways to read the film. And there were people in Toronto who read it. Oh, it's a horror flick. Yeah, it isn't. Um, And, it's in that interstitial space between uh, a cinema that has a political meaning and has a resonance and is is metaphorical and something that is a cinema of spectacle. And that's intentional. And if you read it as a horror flick, you've missed the point. Mm. Um, and it was great because a lot of people in Toronto really got it. They really got it. And I'm really thrilled because our American distributor uh, came to me going, this isn't a horror film. We're not going to market it as a horror film this is a psychological thriller yeah and I was just so thrilled with that because I know that the people who go to see the film thinking they're going to see a body horror flick are disappointed because it isn't Mm. it's it's a psychological thriller and it has a deeper meaning it's it's intended as a metaphor there was the there was a second part of that question now what was that just I suppose where did the monster bit come into it where did it come from? <laughs> so essentially, um, what I wanted to do was I I was really um, I was really inspired by filmmakers who managed to hit that interstitial space really well. So the films that I was thinking of were things like um, Crouching Tiger, or uh, things like Arrival, mm. or you know you could argue about how successful it is, but films like Annihilation or Another Earth. Uh, so films that are using 
the language of popular cinema and of dreams to articulate something that's kind of, that's possibly a bit deeper or, or to talk about ideas, to ask questions, uh, hopefully to make the audience feel something and ask questions. Uh, and that's really where I wanted it to live. And and the um, the kind of central uh, uh, conflict in the story is the conflict between magical thinking and the scientific method. And that grew out of uh, when I was thinking, OK, I want to make a film. I don't want to make a film that's only going to live in an art house audience space, even though I myself, that's my background. Sure. I come from visual art background. Um, I was uh, uh, very tempted and drawn into that world and I started out in that world and that was really enjoyable and I speak that language and I love that language. But I am very aware that to a certain degree when we're raising those ideas in that community, we're preaching to the choir. Mm. And what I wanted to do was to emulate those filmmakers that I saw as, I think Martin Scorsese talked about it as putting a grenade in the middle of your film. (laughs) So you make a film that you hope will reach a wide audience and will have enough of the pleasures of cinema, the pleasures of narrative cinema, which are, you know, spectacle and great, tense narrative and a proper, exciting adventure, a big life, but that also have this grenade at the centre of them, which has a kind of radicalism built into it that doesn't tell people what to think, but that asks people to see the world from another perspective and to ask questions. And that's really what I wanted to do with this film, was to wrap in the language of an exciting psychological thriller, something that is a a kind of um, ethical and emotional grenade about the nature of the culture that we live in. So I felt like I'd seen a lot of films Mm. that vilify the role of the scientist. And again, you know, apropos of what we were talking about earlier about, um, you know, nationalism on the rise, uh, it, it, you know, 2016, I think it was, Michael Gove going, we've had enough of experts. Um, and uh, we see that around us. There's a palpable rise in this idea that you can't trust people who are academically able or you can't trust people who speak in the language of um, of a particular discipline. And, you, and particularly you can't trust scientists as if scientists were somehow uncoupled from ethics or uncoupled from uh, human morality. And actually, you see it in mainstream cinema again and again and again and again, you know, as if the subtext is um, don't mess with God's work or something like that, you know, don't overreach, you know, Prometheus, that kind of myth. And I fundamentally and profoundly disagree with that. And I fundamentally and profoundly disagree with the idea of hunches and the idea of magical thinking and the idea that we should believe what we want to believe. Mm -hmm. And that fundamental um, idea of how the film should be, of course, leads you bang straight into climate change. Uh, Because climate change is where scientific method and wishful thinking, magical thinking, have butted up against each other in the most horrible way. and when you're trying to tell a story about small scale uh, survival fishing off the west coast of Ireland, you're telling a story about climate change. No, but I absolutely love that grenade metaphor. And, you know, it's something it's something I, I talk about a lot, I suppose, reaching to my, my own work. Um, 
but only because I love films that have uh, that say anything, I suppose, that have a bit of a social conscience um, and do so in an interesting way. And somebody said it's like hiding vitamins and ice cream when you when you make a monster film that's actually about environmentalism, diversity and, you know, um, borders, all this kind of thing. Um, and I love the idea of a kind of a sexy scientist and, and kind of like a scientist who's I love that she was responsible rather than being so distanced from humanity and saying, uh, I mean, I don't want to give too much away, but by saying to them, you know, we really need to isolate yourselves from all of this. Um, and it actually, is weirdly, weirdly so on topic at the moment like because it deals with the ethics of contagion. You right. know, how do you square potentially sacrificing one person to save a broader community? How is that right? And is that ever right? Or is it better to try to save that one person but, com- but potentially jeopardise an entire community? And suddenly... Those ethical questions are really pertinent. <laughs> like you could not have timed that better. I mean, like, how do you how do you perceive like, do you worry that because the timing of it is now and that we're all thinking about, you know, coming down with the coronavirus and, you know, your film kind of, is that a spoiler? No, it's not. <laughs> um, like, do you do you worry about how that might be, how it might be perceived now? One of the executives at Screen Ireland very wittily said to me, you know, I know this is a coincidence and you're very lucky your film's coming out now because if it came out in two months, people would accuse you of doing this on purpose. That's true. No, that's very true. Um, that's very true, actually. So it's funny that I just want to go back to the scientist thing and kind of talk about your, your lead character for a little bit because um, I thought she was great and she really defied a lot of expectations. And the other one of the other films I saw at Diff this year was Radioactive by Marjan Strappi, which is about Marie Curie. And Marjan's trapped to do Q&A afterwards and she said, you know, it's really hard to, you know, she said a lot of science and scientific stuff that she's on, sees on screen in cinema. She said it's usually very unsexy and it's kind of boring and it's kind of painted that way. And so her whole thing with Radioactive and telling Marie Curie's story was to make it sexy and to make it appealing. And she played, she paid this amazing love story um, in the middle of it all. So I just want to like, can you talk a little bit about your lead character and a little bit a bit more about kind of science being the hero of the story? Uh, I think that's really well put. I think science is the hero of this story. So there are a couple of things I want to say about the lead character. Uh, first of all, I have to say Hermione Corfield, who played the part, I th- I would work with her again like a shot. In mm. fact, I've already booked her. <laughs> I think she's uh, she did an amazing job because um, the character that I wrote what I wanted to do was to articulate uh, and and probe and investigate some of the cliches that we have around scientists in cinema. Um, and some of the cliches that I perceived were this notion of disconnection, this notion of being separate, of being uh, unemotional, of not understanding um, human connection. Uh, and I started to kind of drill down into that going, OK, so wh- where does that come from and what is that? Um, and uh, one of the, the books that I was uh, reading during my research was Neurotribes, talking about um, people who are uh, on the autism spectrum are often quite drawn to science. Not that they're particularly good at science like uh, in comparison with anybody else, but that science allows people who are on the autism spectrum to uh, focus on something where the things that are very difficult and challenging for them don't really come into play. Uh, so Henry Cavendish is sort of the poster boy for that. Okay. You know, incredibly intelligent, able, articulate, smart, uh, revolutionary scientist who paved the way for modern physics, uh, who found it very, very difficult 
to make connections with people who was very shy, who uh, tried to separate himself from people because it was very frightening for him because he didn't really understand the nuance and the uh, subtleties and undertones of emotional communication that we that we engage in between each other. So I thought, OK, well, that's really interesting. So let's drill down into that and let's produce somebody who uh, who has those characteristics. So she conforms to the stereotype in a lot of ways. Uh, and then let's kind of pull back the curtain on what what really is going on there. Because in my story, you know, Siobhan, who's the central character played by Hermione, is perfectly able. She's she's um, perfectly happily and uh, effectively living her own life. And the areas that she really struggles with are nuance, subtlety, interpersonal connection. And it's not, I think the big point to make is, it's not that she doesn't want those things. It's not that she's not lonely. And it's not that she's not hurt when people misunderstand her as cold or unable uh, or uncaring. It's that she's trying to protect herself from the rejection and from the hurt and from the mistakes that cause her to hurt other people. And so she's kind of withdrawn. And at the beginning of the story, she's we, we position her in this kind of glass space where it's completely pristine, it's completely clear, it's a really intellectual life. And she has withdrawn from uh, trying, from human connection, from trying to uh, to make intimacies with people, even though she would really like to because it's so difficult and so painful. And it, you know... From my experience of people that I, that I know uh, who um, live with this kind of cognitive difference, it can result in bullying. It can result in isolation. It can result in a lot of pain. And so people who, uh, you know, it used to be referred to as uh, Asperger's syndrome, who um, are cognitively different, uh, many of whom are incredibly able and really smart, like Siobhan is, um, sometimes experience bullying and experience exclusion. And so what Siobhan has done in that instance is she has withdrawn from social communication because it's just too difficult. And she can do this other thing really, really well. So that's what she does. Mm. So what I wanted to do then was say, that's the origin of the myth. That's the origin of the screen presentation of the, the scientists that we see. It's not that they're amoral. In fact, if you were hanging off the edge of a cliff and you were on a rope, you would want Siobhan on the other end of that rope but because she would never let go. She would never let go and she would drag you up with the, her last breath. Uh, she is the most moral, the most ethical person on that boat. And she is the person who is the least susceptible to wishful and magical thinking. She is the clearest, uh, she has the clearest view of what's going on, but she's also genuinely really ethical. And that was kind of the argument I wanted to advance for that cliche image of the scientist. And sorry, I feel like I'm talking a lot here. But no. the other the other thing that was really important to say then was not only people who are cognitively different are scientists. There are other people who, who you know, are more neurotypical, who also make great scientists. So I wanted to pair her with Omid, who's the second lead in the story, who is a really brilliant engineer. He is uh, equally analytical and they can almost finish each other's sentences even when they meet, although they don't get on, uh, because they have the same kind of ability to withdraw uh, what they wish were true and look at what they can actually perceive and try to piece together what's really happening without engaging in wishful thinking. And the thing about Amid is he's perfectly emotionally able. He's warm. He has lots of friends on the boat. He's really emotionally connected. So it's not that being a scientist means that you're emotionally disconnected. 
And I, I love that she, that's so well put. And I think like by the end of it, I was really rooting for her. You know, like even when, like she has a bit of chemistry with uh, Jack Hickey's character. And I was so, I was like, yeah, get it, girl. <laughs> like, I was so like pleased. I was kind of pleased for her. And uh, just, by, just by the end of it, I was kind of proud of her. I don't know. There was something going on. Yeah, there was some, so there was definitely a connection I found there. Um, and it's so it's so interesting that you you mention um, Omid and she's the first thing she says to him is when she sees this amazing work he's built he literally designed she says why don't you have a better job which I love and he's just like well this is kind of all I have at the moment um, do you think just something that came to mind when you're talking about kind of misunderstanding those kinds of behaviours do you think that's gendered do you think women are more susceptible to being misunderstood in that situation than guys. It's really interesting you ask that. It's one of the things that Hermione and I talked a lot about uh, when she was preparing for the part, uh, when she was thinking about it, when she was hanging out with people that she met who uh, were neurodivergent and who were talking to her about their experiences. And she was just kind of, you know, bringing them to parties and uh, uh, observing both the physical and the intellectual differences between her and these people so that she could try to embody that more truthfully. And one of the things that she said to me was, it's very liberating. Oh, It's very liberating as a woman. Because, of course, we're trained always to uh, perceive and act on uh, the needs and emotional frailties of the people around us. We're trained since childhood to do that. And we get rewarded for that. Mm. And if you are uh, neurodivergent or cognitively divergent and you struggle with those things, there's a kind of directness that, you know, I think it, it it is certainly punished harder in girls than it is in boys. Um, but for Hermione playing that part, uh, the ability to be that direct was strangely liberating. And you were talking about there's a moment where um, where she articulates her desire to, uh, to Jack Hickey's character. And that was the moment where she went, this, this feels so different. Mm. It feels so different from how I as a woman in my life would ever behave. And I think, you know, a lot of the women on set really resonated with that going. It's so she she owns herself so much and she owns her own agency and her own desire without thinking twice about it. Going, This is what I want. Uh, no, I had such admiration. I know I don't I don't mean to like put every, like all that stock in that one moment. But I was just again, I thought about it as like just there thinking I would never do that. Fair play. <laughs> I would never. Do. Um that's brilliant. And I just, yeah, no, she's such a great character and she's one I can't wait to to hear more about from other audience members, I suppose, who are kind of thinking about those kinds of themes. Um, one thing I really want to talk about, and this is kind of, t- you know, not necessarily talking about the movie itself, but rather the development process that I'm really, really curious about. Because am I right in saying that this has been develop- in development or, I suppose, incoming for a long time? Yes and no. I think it's one of those things where uh, I had the idea a while ago and then, you know, you put it aside and, you know, I've been lucky enough to uh, to have other projects that have come to fruition. So uh, I, you, you as a writer and as a director, you take the opportunities that are presented to you. So other opportunities presented themselves and I went yeah. and did them and then, you know, you come back to this and go, oh, maybe it could be something slightly different. And then you go away for a year and do something else. So it sounds like, I think it was like four years, something like that. But and it sounds like a long time, but actually in reality, you know, you're you're looking at it and then going away and then coming back and then going away. And maybe that's useful. Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah. I mean I mean did it always have like I'm just thinking about 
what you said about you know the inspiration of seeing those um, refugees on the trawlers and stuff like that. It's just this ongoing research that you kind of come back to and take away from all the time. I, yeah, I think that's true. Yeah, you are absorbing things from around you all the time, and uh, and you know that was very important to me as well in terms of um, how we populate the boat. Uh, that there's a there's a way of telling stories about um, underrepresented communities and and women, where you make their underrepresentation the fulcrum of the story. So, you know, stories about women, which are stories about sexism or stories about people of colour, which are stories about racism. Mm. And that's important because those things are true uh, and they are genuine cultural stumbling blocks that people face because of, you know, the bodies that that we are in. Um, but in some ways, I think there is a counter argument there as well that that bears some consideration, which is we need to make sure that those aren't the only stories that we're telling that we're not just telling stories about sexism uh, or or we're not just telling stories about how women fail and we're not just telling stories about how people of colour fail. Mm. Even if those stories are couched in the reason for the failure is, you know, sociocultural and, and to do with structures, ultimately we're still telling stories about how those people fail. I think it's important for us to also give underrepresented communities their full humanity, our full humanity, um, and not to limit ourselves to the ways in which we are discriminated against, but rather to valorise the ways in which we are fully human. Mm. And for me, in terms of telling the story, that's what I wanted to do. So uh, at one point early in the process, um, one of the producers uh, said to me, would you consider making Siobhan the only person, on, the only woman on the boat? Um, because then, you know, you're, you're stating her difference as uh, gender difference or sex difference, as well as cognitive difference. And I thought about it and I thought that's actually the opposite of what I want to do. Mm. I want to make her sex not relevant in this story. Uh, and it was really important to me to populate the boat 50-50 because that's the world we live in. And we don't all go around going, I as a white person or I as a woman. Um, you know, we go around thinking of ourselves in terms of the amalgamation of our experience and our skill set. And that's what we bring into the room. Mm. And it's, of course, inflected by, you know, whatever your uh, experiences are of privilege or disadvantage. But there are other things in there that I think are worth valorizing and talking about. And I wanted to do, to do that with the women and I wanted to do that with the, the people of color and particularly with Amid, who in the middle of the story you discover is um, a Syrian refugee. And I wanted to position him very sharply and clearly as a Syrian refugee, as somebody who came on the boats. And then also to say that does not define him, that does, that experience inflects his understanding of the world, but it does not define him. Mm. I think I loved that we found that it was kind of like in the background what we knew him to be was this exceptional engineer and I'm just like is it a preoccupation for us to automatically go towards sexism racism as of being like a plot point or an, a, some sort of narrative device to kind of move the story on like is that something that we're too preoccupied with I, I mean, it's a difficult question, isn't it? Because yeah. you can't, you, you don't want to elide it. You don't want to say this doesn't exist because it does and it needs to be talked about. And the one of the ways to talk about it is to problematise it in narrative cinema. You know, that's really powerful. Um, but, uh, but personally, I feel we do ourselves a disservice if those are the only stories that we tell. Yeah. Uh, and for me, I feel like my role as a filmmaker and what I want to do in terms of my screen storytelling is to tell stories where people who are traditionally underrepresented have proper agency and are fully human. 
and to, and to really experience the world through their eyes rather than problematizing their bodies. Mm. I'm going to move on and talk about something that actually I almost asked you at Q&A, uh, which is the boat. I'm going to talk about the boat um, because I loved the boat and I loved the set. And I want to I want to ask you about what it was what it was like to shoot on the boat and how much was the boat and how much was a set and where was the set? Uh, I'm so delighted you're asking that question. <laughs> Because, you know, if you as a fellow filmmaker don't know, then nobody knows. Yeah, yeah, no. So yeah. that's good. Uh, what we did was um, we shot for seven days on the actual trawler, which is called the Fort Angus. Uh, and we took it out to sea and uh, the actors all got sick. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and because they were all really, really committed professional people, everybody except Hermione, because she didn't have to know how to do it, uh, learned how to gut fish and learned how to operate the winch. And uh, and Connie and Dugray learned how to pilot the boat. Uh, so they all took it really seriously and they were, you know, some of them were better at it than others. I won't, I won't lie to you. Yeah. Connie Nielsen could gut a fish in like 20 seconds. I can she was really it. impressive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we did that for the first seven days and um, we had uh, we had Cleana and her brother on the boat with us, showing us the ropes, uh, quite literally, um, sh- teaching the actors, um, laughing at them when they got it wrong, all that kind of stuff. So that was hugely valuable. And then we took that experience with us. I did think, first of all, that we might shoot the whole film on the boat. And then when I actually got onto the boat and and had a look at it for the first time, just about three months before we were shooting, I thought, Jesus Christ, we'll never even get a camera in here, let alone, you know, 80 hairy crew members. So because, of course, space is at a premium. You know, you live cheek by jowl. It's so intimate. It's so intimate. So what what we did instead was we recreated the boat on a set. So the designer, Ray Ball, made this entire trawler on a set in Ardmore and it was complete. So you could climb into it and walk through the whole boat and climb the ladders and go into the, the fish hold and climb the ladder and go back into the cabin and come back through the galley. It, it was the entirety of the boat with um, with ceilings and working electrics and everything so that the actors could feel properly trapped because you need that claustrophobia. But the advantage for us uh, as, a, as, um, as filmmakers was it had these segments that you could take out mm. so that you the, the camera is always inside the space, but sometimes the lens is just at the wall. Uh, so we take out a little bit of the wall and put the lens in the wall. So it never goes outside the space. It's never further out than, than you could physically be. Sure. Um, but we were able to keep the 80 hairy crew members then outside <laughs> of the set rather than all crammed into this tiny little, which they wouldn't have fitted into anyways. Sure, I know. I was just, because I was, I was thinking that when I was watching it, because I thought the scenes where they're kind of down below deck and having dinner and stuff. I was thinking that has to have been a set. Like there's no way you can wedge. The amount of times I've been on a set at a recce with my DP who's like, you're not going to, you don't get you're not going to get that shot you want because it's like tiny. We're in a box. <laughs> um, he raised great, by the way. I, I have I have no Ray. He's such a lovely man. I haven't seen him in years. Oh, my God. He is such a lovely guy. He's and so creatively able. He's just brilliant. Yeah. What are your sea legs like? I have quells, sea sickness tablets that you take two hours before you go on the boat. Oh, did they work? Oh God, yeah. Okay, I'm gonna remember that next time I'm anywhere near some sort of <laughs> some sort of raft or whatever. I was like a pusher. By the time we got to uh, day two, the actress was like, "Do you have any more of those tablets?" <laughs> um, did you learn how to good fish? Like, do you did you do everything that they were kind of learned? Did you learn how to do knots and things like that? No, no, no. 
I did not. No, I had uh, I had Kleena telling me uh, this is what the actress should be doing. And then the actors were much better able to do than I was. I was just behind the camera going, that looks great. <laughs> well <laughs> or, done. do that again. It's a bit slow. <laughs> yeah. Don't make a song and dance of it. Like, <laughs> yeah, I say that's that's my favourite. Just don't make a song and dance out of your time. <laughs> um, I was kind of, I mean, I know you've mentioned Annihilation and you've mentioned Arrival. Um, and how... I mean, how much did you, how much did you draw upon from, I mean, I I'd actually talk about, I would love to hear you talk about, you know, film studies as well, because somebody, another film scholar of mine, a good friend of mine, um, who was in college with me said, the more you know, the more you can rip off. <laughs> and I thought that was the kind of, I mean, that was kind of a grass way to put it, but I, I mean, is, is there any specific influences? Is there anything you did in your film studies time that has greatly influenced you in your work? Because I know for me, I was you know surrounded by so much interesting work from all sorts that I hold dear and take with me it's Delacroix I think the painter who says um, learn your craft it won't stop you from being a genius and I think it's really important and I know you share this uh, you know I feel like there is an unnecessary gap between film theory and critical, like properly engaged critical analysis. I'm yeah. not talking about reviews. I'm talking about properly engaged critical yeah, analysis. Absolutely. And film practice. And I think for us as filmmakers, it really behooves us not to get caught up all the time in the how, but to really focus and drill down into the why. Uh, so for me, you know, and you and I share this, I have uh, I have a terribly nerdy academic interest in, in film and in film analysis. Yeah. Uh, and in analysing the uh, the language and the grammar of film and what films are doing. And uh, my, this sounds really, uh, really nerdy, but I'm just going to go ahead and say, because I know I'm among friends, my PhD <laughs> is really about this. It, uh, what I did with my PhD was I wanted to look at that idea of the grenade inside popular cinema. Um, how do we, because, because what I know, what I know from making mass stories from making stories that screen to you know big audiences across I'm not I'm not, I'm not blowing my own trumpet here but you know when you make big tv drama it yeah. screens across the world and what I know from that is that you can be quite radical in terms of the stories that you tell if you tell them in such a way that you are drawing people in both with character and narrative tension and that people will go with you on your radical journeys. And I know that from Happy Valley and I know that from Jessica Jones. And what I really wanted to do was to bring that knowledge with me into cinema that we can tell stories that are properly radical. Because what do we know about storytelling? What do we know about screen storytelling? We know that we make culture. You know, the number of people that will quote cinema lines to you as words to live by, the number of people who will talk about having seen something in the cinema that changed the course of their lives. There was an article recently um, in, uh, was it in the Harvard Business Review that was called the Scully Effect. And Scully is the woman who uh, was played by Gillian Anderson in right, The X-Files. Yeah. And she's a scientist. Um, and the Scully Effect is during the years when The X-Files was screening on television, the number of girls who chose uh, STEM, which is uh, science technology, engineering, maths, who chose STEM subjects for a third level, went up. That's making culture. That is making culture. 
And we have a duty and responsibility to know that that's what we're doing when we tell screen stories. It's I'm not talking about propaganda. I don't think we should be telling people what to think. But that old adage, you know, if you can see it, you can be it. We do have a responsibility to do that. We do have a responsibility to populate our stories with diverse people, with underrepresented people and to give those people big lives and adventures where they have agency. Yes, I could not agree with you more because I this is something I love to talk about and I talk about how we as we as filmmakers have a responsibility to use our platform as a voice, as a tool for social change. It is anyway, yeah. I think. Yes. It, it is anyway, regardless. I remember, um, God, years ago, interviewing Ken Loach. And uh, I asked him, what, what's your view when people call you a political filmmaker? And he said, all films are political. You think Die Hard isn't political? Die Hard is really political. It's, it's just so political. really right wing. <laughs> no, but it's true. Like everything has like the amount of like I did a class um when I was doing my film studies degree on the nineteen cinema of the nineteen eighties and I was like we were looking at um aliens and we were looking at Back to the Future. And, you know, I remember people asking me, Well, you know, do you not think that like does that not ruin films for you? And do you really think the filmmaker intended for it to be like that? And I was like, I don't know, maybe. Does it matter? Because there's a cultural influence there. And again, my thesis actually my for my master's was also on exactly that. It was now it was examining a very particular time and place in America, Black Lives Matter, but also how that was reflected on screen by filmmakers like get out, because that's get out, it's a horror film. But it's saying so much about racism. Exactly. <laughs> Um, um, yes so I absolutely like 100% agree and I, all these people have like it's the most important social medium that you have people do it together right and it's where people get all their information about society and popular like people get their perceptions of everything from popular culture right I I feel that it's our, our duty and responsibility to be aware of that and to articulate uh, an enculturating worldview. I think that's. I think it's our duty as directors and as writers mm. to do that, uh, because yeah, like Ken Loach says, every film is political. Every, every film. film is political. What's next for you? At the moment, uh, I'm making a political thriller. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a it's a, a thriller, uh, an international mystery thriller for Netflix. So that'll be out in the autumn, mm. um, and then I'm hoping to make another film. And how do you find, like, how do you find working in, in television? Like, what is, I know that's a stupid question. That's such a broad question. I suppose. It's an excellent question. No. <laughs> As an emerging filmmaker trying to break into move into television, what's that world? I, do you know, I was, this is a question I get asked um, uh, a lot. Um, and it's that there are more women in TV than there are in film. And like, why is, like, why do you think that might be? Why do you think there's more space created for female directors? It's a myth. The, the level that I work at, uh, which is uh, the, what I've just done is eight million an hour. And um, once you get over three million dollars an hour, the number of female directors drops to four uh, percent. The way that those numbers get calculated, you can do it a hundred different ways. And the way that is most telling is by budget. Uh, there is plenty of room for female directors in art house cinema. There's plenty of room for female directors to tell small stories about underrepresented groups as long as they're not over $2 million and as long as they have a limited release. But if you want to tell stories that are genuinely enculturating, that will genuinely reach people who don't have the money to go to art house cinema once every, once a week, uh, then that's that's where it, the power starts to become really apparent. 
And that's something actually I was talking to somebody about today is how the bigger the budget, like women don't necessarily get big budgets all the time, which is like there's only like a very small amount of directors who are women who get big budgets. And I like I can't like it's it's feel I feels like we have a long way to go. Uh, yeah, I think this is really an issue of trust. Yeah, it is. You know, I, I you and I take very seriously the fact that um, when we make a film, it means somebody is giving you millions of dollars or millions of euro uh, on the basis that you're going to make it good enough that they'll get their money back. And that's a very serious responsibility. And, you know, our job is to make it to the very best of our ability. But while we are committed to doing that, there is also on the side of the financier the assessment of risk. And I think that's where, you know, sexism and, and racism come into play again. I think it was Gina Davis who said, nobody is expecting the next Kubrick to be a woman. And uh, and what we're seeing there is unconscious bias, is, uh, you know, financiers who are going, well, if I'm going to risk my 10 million, I'm, I'm going to risk it on somebody that I think is going to do a good job. And so then they're making this kind of... Um, uh, magical thinking, uh, uh, not very rational assessment, just on the basis of you know how low somebody's voice is and uh, whether they look masterful when they come into the room, and all that. I'm I'm joking now, but you know, unconscious bias is really about those things. It's mm-hmm. magical thinking at its worst, um, and unconscious bias works against women and people of color. Certainly does, and uh, that's again, unconscious bias is something that I, I think about kind of regularly, especially now that we're kind of. In this climate where, it's, at least in Ireland, things are trying to be turned around. Um, and like, what do you, this is going to be, this is a hard question. Uh, but how do we, like, in a sentence, how do you? Uh, not is it maths? Because if it's maths, that's really no. hard. No, <laughs> <laughs> no, but how do we, how do we change that? You know what? I think it's easy. I actually think it's easy. I think this is an incredibly easily solved problem. Uh, it's about recognizing what's going on and it's so easy to fix you know we all swim you know the you know the joke about two goldfish swimming along and this other goldfish comes towards them in the other direction and the other goldfish says to the two goldfish hey lads how's the water and they go yeah fine 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 and then the two goldfish swim on and one turns together going oh it's water (laughs) and uh, that's we all swim in the water right Um, all we have to do is know what the water is know what it is and i think you know if you are uh, a woman working in the business or if you're a person of colour working in the business, you know what the water is because you see it all around you. You see the the obstacles that are put in the way of you and of uh, your colleagues who are, you know, underrepresented. You see it. And I think the risk is that uh, sometimes if you are uh, privileged, it's actually really hard to see. It's really hard to see because yeah. you don't experience it anecdotally and personally. So you don't actually know about it. And so for me as a white person, I constantly have to be going, what is the water like for people of colour here around me? And as a man, I think your job is to go, what is the water like for women uh, around me? And just be aware of that. Be aware of it. And I think being aware of it solves the problem. Dr. Nyasa Hardiman, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. All the very best with Sea Fever. I can't wait to A, see it again and for other people uh, to see it. Um, when is it released in cinemas? 24th of April. 24th of April. Buy tickets early and often. <laughs> Lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much. Well. <laughs>